Hi, it's Ira recording this in 2006. Uh, this episode of our show, episode 33, is one that actually never was broadcast nationally. We did a local broadcast of it in Chicago and always sort of intended to go back to it and make it into a national version and never did. In fact, we don't even have like a master copy of it, a digital recording of it. And what you're about to hear is actually from, uh, from a cassette we have of the show, which is the only copy we can find. Anyway, here we go. I don't remember when I first wandered into the Wiener Circle. I'm sure it was after midnight. I'm sure that, as always, the place was mobbed. I'm sure that, as always, people were screaming. I need a veggie burger! Lady! Lady! Veggie burger? The front of the hot dog stand is filled with a swarm of people. When I first went, it was a weird mix of cops. There was a lot of cops there. Drunk, yuppie, 20-somethings, working-class people who work in the neighborhood... But what really got to me was the staff. There's, a, there's one of these windows you can look through. You know, they ask for your order through. And they're in a space so small you could not park a car back there. And it's hot. You can tell it's hot. There are deep fryers and grills pouring off heat. There's hot grease everywhere. And they are constantly bumping into each other, getting into each other's way. And all of them, all of them are screaming nonstop. It's a kind of work environment that makes you wonder, only one thing. Why don't these people want to kill each other? I don't know. What has he got? Stop being so mad. I don't know. What in the f did you order? That's all I'm asking. 2.30. That's all. Very easy. Then we'll get along. Now you can talk. But if you watch the workers at the Wiener Circle a little while more, you realize something else. They actually seem kind of happy. They're getting along. They kind of love each other. They joke around. I thought, whoever manages this place really knows how to run a restaurant. I mean, they're taking a job that seems like one of the hardest, most grinding physically and psychologically on your feet all day, yelling backwards and forwards, and somehow they have turned it into a job that the people there actually seem to kind of like. I have more respect for this job than I can say almost any job that I've had, and I've had a lot of jobs. You want to be here is like... You're not working for money. You, you want to be here for real. Come on. Yeah, I'm serious. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, a night at the Wiener Circle. I was there from 9 at night until dawn a couple Saturday nights ago. I saw hundreds of screaming drunks. A guy walked in who'd been carrying a statue of Zeus from one bar to the next. I saw a couple meet and flirt and get together. The staff cursed out the patrons. The curse sang them songs. Sometimes they sang them songs, mysteriously, I should say, in Hebrew. What else happened? A man exposed himself to the women behind the counter at their request. And at the end of the evening, everybody agreed. For them, it had been a quiet night. Each week on our show, of course, we invite a variety of writers and performers. And this week, our contributors gave us stories about working in the lovely food service industry, about fast food places, about meat. Anyway, stay with us. So let us go back now. 
I guess I know we're getting sound transition would have been a good idea there. But whatever. Let us go back now in time to a Saturday night. It is time to meet our cast of characters. There is Larry and Barry, the owners of the Wiener Circle. Larry is a 50-year-old man in spandex pants when he works Saturday nights. He lives in the high-rise across the street from the Wiener Circle. That's on Clark Street, by the way, between um, Fullerton and Diversity. Larry lives on the lowest floor so he can see in. Barry is 41, shot up from 180 pounds to 300 since they bought the Wiener Circle from eating the mistakes, he says. In the last two years, he's lost 100 of those pounds. And sitting on the picnic tables in front of the hot dog stand, they laugh about all the excuses that employees use to get out of work or show up late over the course of years. And they're talking about this when right at that moment, their night shift grillman walks up. Here, come, here comes one of our employees who was supposed to be in at 8 o'clock. He's motioning in like nothing ever happened. Here, you're about to hear one of the excuses. Tell him why you weren't, why you weren't, this is Tony here. Tell him why you were supposed to be at 8 and you're here at 10. You were supposed to be at 8 o'clock. That's right, but I got um, flat tire, so. There you go. See, that was one of the excuses. That's an old one. Thank you anyways, Tony. He doesn't even own a car. Yeah, so that was, uh, <laughs> the bus. you know, the bus had a flat tire, I think. As you can see, we're not uptight about it. These guys are like the car guys, <laughs> you know. I don't know if you're getting much sense of this. When they first opened the Wiener Circle 15 years ago, this is the sort of thing, showing up late, that they would fire people for. But they realized over time that it takes so long to train somebody that it just was not worth it for them to hire somebody new who then would have exactly the same number of late days and excuses and all that. So they have mellowed. They have mellowed over the years, and they view that as what they have. They view that as basically their experience, they told me. On the Saturday night shift, there's also Vicky who's married to Barry but refuses to work the same shift as Barry does. There's Nani on fries, Tony on the grill, Patricia and Freddie at the counter with coffee. Coffee's a person, by the way. Coffee is a person whose real name is Pat, but she insists on coffee because, as she will be the first to tell you... Because I grind so fast. Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's the backbone. Everybody asks for... her best, though, after midnight. After midnight, baby. It is Coffee who sticks her long tongue out at men, on request and not. It is Coffee who can get the last word with any customer. It is Coffee, by the way, who accidentally cursed out Lawrence Fishburn this week in the restaurant, not realizing who he was. The night I was there, a guy walked in at one point early in the night. It says to uh, Coffee and Patricia, who are standing behind the counter, You work here? And, of course, it's Coffee who says... No, we just standing back just here for decoration. Like the fuck you thought? We just standing here because we like it. The fuck are you having? The guy sputters. Newcomers to the Wiener Circle late at night usually are not prepared for what they get. Regulars, on the other hand, come in all night and try to get the last word on coffee and on everybody else, but especially on coffee. Coffee's like, you know those old westerns where there's like, you know, the, the gunslinger who's the top gun? That's that's coffee, and that's the problem with being the Top Gun. If you remember your John Wayne movies, you know that that's the problem with being the Top Gun. There's always somebody who thinks he's just a little quicker. Being Top Gun, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Being Top Gun, if they can score, if they can score on me, and that's 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 the whole thing. I mean, I I feel like when I be here, I'm I'm as famous as as Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman. Don't f with her. Don't f with her. 
I have so much charming tape of them yelling at each other. Like, hours and hours of it. Coffee has four kids. The older ones have seen her cursing at the wiener circle and were shocked at first, she says. But then they understood that's just how she is at work. And she does have another job, she told me. Um, I teach um, preschoolers, believe it or not. Over the course of a Saturday night these days, the wiener circle is mostly filled with yuppies, yuppie 20-somethings, seriously drunk. It is not an attractive sight. The women behind the counter call each other and themselves bitch, mostly, as in... Tell the black bitch as many times as she needs to know. There are not many settings in our mostly segregated city of Chicago where you can see a room of mostly white, jock-like boys screaming insults, yelling bitch at women, sometimes actually throwing money, literally throwing dollar bills at a group of mostly non-white women and men. Coming to the wiener circle drunk, they have license to talk and act like they talk and act nowhere else. But when I ask Coffee about it, she says that she doesn't see any big racial edge to what goes on at her job. She likes most of her customers. She truly likes them. And she says they don't go over the line. She tells me this story about um, a white South African who came in and misinterpreted the license that was happening inside the Wiener Circle. He said, um, he said to me, he said, um, you, you, um, black ass nigger, you, you don't talk like that to me. Do you know who I am? And, um, when I, at first, when he first said it, okay, um, I was laughing it off because I always laugh it off. Like if somebody say, hey, you black bitch, I said, thank you, you know, yeah. or you a dirty black, I said, thank you, you know. So I thought he was playing at first until when he, uh, he said something that one of the customers knew that he was actually being prejudiced about. And what happened was uh, two of the other white guys that usually come in jumped on him and started to fight him. When they take their breaks, the Wiener Circle staff seem to actually like each other. At one point I was talking to Vicky and Coffee, and as Coffee was talking, Vicky gently reached over and wiped some mustard off of Coffee's cheek. Friday and Saturday nights from midnight till four, working the Wiener Circle has the intensity of working an emergency room. Except, of course, it's about hot dogs. And the Wiener Circle staff has bonded the way that emergency room staffs bond. And at dawn, after screaming at each other all night long, I mean, it sounds really corny to say it, but they are really affectionate with each other. They have no anger left over. If you ask the customers why they come here, most of them say it is the food and the employees. Or as one man put it, very concisely, I thought, it's dinner and a show. And some of the staff view it as a show also. And they say that if they weren't putting on a show, this would just be another food service job. Freddie, for example, said that um, he's worked the days at the Wiener Circle. And during the day, there's none of this acting up. There's none of the screaming. It is a normal hot dog stand that you can take your kids to. And Freddie said, it's hard to bear, really. The hours drag by. It is not much fun at all. It's like, it's like you say, uh, please, thank you, um, have a nice day, and all that. And during the night, it's like a bunch of drunks, and it's like playing all night, playing all night. And so if you couldn't scream, it would just be another, it would just be another job. Absolutely. 
Now I have something to confess to you, my beloved radio listeners. Though I have really amazing tape of, of other things which happened that night at the Wiener Circle, tape of Vicky and Patricia and Larry and the staff, and then some of the customers who really, really had some stories to tell, I have to say, including, including this, is a, this is a hot dog stand oddly haunted by David Schwimmer for reasons I can't even begin to imagine. There's all sorts of stuff which happened, and um, without going into the details, I would just say that those parts of the story did not get completed for tonight's show, but will be completed, not for this coming Saturday when we're talking about the Democrats, but the Saturday after that. You can hear this and more, 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 a much more vivid little story. So listen to our little show for that, okay? Because there's a lot more to say about the winter circle than I'm saying right now. And I want to I share it with you. Go to the restaurant and get something to eat, man. Yes, I'm strictly for that, man. Well, I know just the thing to get. Well, tell me so I can get some. Well, listen to me and I'll tell you everything. I'm listening. Here I come. Come on. Hot dog. Ain't they very nice? Hot dog. Try them once or twice. Hot dog. They go fine with rice. With the mustard and the relish and the pickles, too. A hot dog. Hurry, hurry, won't you, boy? Hot dog. Make you jump with joy. Hot dog. Believe me, it's the real McCoy. With the mustard and the relish and the pickles, too. Cola. Save my soul. I don't want orange. Lemon or lime, cause something else fine is on my mind. Hot dog, hurry, hurry, don't be late. Hot dog, try them on your dinner plate. Hot dog, ooh, it's a date with fate. With the mustard and the relish and the pickles too. Hot dog. Of course, the relationship between um, staff and customers at the Wiener Circle is not your typical relationship between restaurant staff and, and restaurant worker. And uh, for a more typical story, uh, we turn to Bo O'Reilly, who not only is a playwright and a frequent contributor to our show, but he actually works at a restaurant, has worked at many restaurants, and has this story of 
a possibly recognizable restaurant in our possibly recognizable Chicagoland area. In our restaurant, restaurant workers give out new names to favorite customers, or, and this is a much bigger category, favorite customers to hate and be bugged by. And the names usually come from restaurant habits. Five o'clock window seat lady, Mr. Saturday night, two ashtray owl, or more potently and likely to stick forever, favorite food orders. The scone man always has one, a scone, and it's always well done. He's a favorite with a spot on the restaurant worker's heart because of his consistency. The is there weed in this lady who always brings a shudder of annoyance so deep that the restaurant worker feels he must be suffering a stroke or a brain aneurysm. Is there weed in this? What about the soup? Is there weed in it? The lasagna, is there weed in it? The bread, is there wheat in it? I can't have wheat. Can I have half a bowl? Not the medium bowl. A tiny bowl. Can I have it to go? I can't eat it here. Can you double wrap it? Can you heat it on the stove? I can't have it microwaved. I can't have microwaves. Can I have some water while I wait? Is there wheat in this water? The restaurant worker has been known to lock the door when he sees the is there wheat in this lady coming. The mustard man is more deserving of pity, and the restaurant worker is aware of this. The mustard man is a limo driver who's gone legally blind, and he's probably harmless when he's not behind the wheel. He's pursuing a new line of work now, but like a middle-aged fat man pursuing a spot on the Olympic decathlon team, a new line of work may be outside his reach. The mustard man studies podiatry at the foot school across the street from where the restaurant worker works. The mustard man is a near member of that school's graduating class for the seventh time. Before the mustard man became the mustard man, he was that guy from the school who offers to rub your feet, especially if your feet were lovely and your gams were shapely. He would offer to work on your foot without batting an eye, as if he were asking you to pass the ketchup. And his food orders were almost normal back then, almost normal, but broken up and oddly shaped. Soup. Soup must be served first, but soup always served cold until the restaurant worker anticipated it being served that way, and then he, the mustard man, would send it back with the instructions to nuke it until boiling. And when that soup was bubbling like a lava flow out of Mount Vesuvius, the mustard man would dump ice into it just to cool it back down. Desserts were worried over with hopes that the dessert at least would be included for free, Forks exchanged randomly for extra spoons, knives sent back to the dishwasher, extra napkins, extra bread, extra, extra, extra. And every little variation of the dinner order was announced with an increased urgency that pretended towards the matter of fact. The mustard man's ordering technique seemed designed to ask the restaurant worker to pay attention to him as many times as possible, and the longer the mustard man came to the restaurant, Gradually, he increased his visits from once a week to three or four times a week. The more the restaurant worker's trips to the mustard man's tables had to be increased. The restaurant worker took on a permanent look of vexation and rage that only the mustard man seemed not to notice. Other customers, they withered from that look. Their bold orders for whole meals were reduced to weak pleas for cups of tea and mumbled requests to use the phone. The idea of putting even one more straw on this restaurant worker's back by ordering real food was too much for these sensitive souls. But not the mustard man. 
The mustard man continued his barrage. More water, warm, not hot, fresh oregano, mint toothpicks, fresh bowls. As the weeks went on, the mustard man seemed to settle in and he began to feel at home. He started table hopping. And usually the other tables, they were filled with other near graduates of the podiatry school, most of whom learned the mysteries of the human foot in a short one or two years. And in our restaurant, the mustard man's table hopping, that was not acceptable. The students would cringe with disapproval as he approached them, declaiming the science of feet in a loud voice and manically grabbing at any unprotected Birkenstocks in a compulsive need to work on your foot, work on your foot. But the mustard man was crafty. He would rotate his table hopping so no one student group had too much cause to complain. The restaurant worker's annoyance was growing. Indeed, it had passed rage now, and it had moved into a gibbering idiot hatred that worked on his brain. That's the thing about restaurants, working in restaurants. The workers hate the customers. It's an unnatural relationship. You're there to serve them. Why should you serve them? Until one day, the mustard man met the restaurant worker at the door as the restaurant worker was opening our restaurant for the evening. And he seemed particularly happy, the mustard man, reciting the entire menu aloud as the restaurant worker busied himself making coffee in a feeble attempt to ignore the mustard man. The door opens and in walks a potential performer. Now his voice is just quivering with excitement at the possibility of using the place for avant-garde karaoke or contact wild turkey improvisation parties, something. His eyes speak of wild parties, wild turkey and more. His voice gets loud and rapid-firing questions and the restaurant worker puts him off insisting on an appointment at a later date, a demo tape, a blueprint proposal, at another time. Right now, the restaurant worker, he's running a pot of coffee, and that coffee requires a lot of attention. And the mustard man, he jumps up to help. He's taking the potential performer on a tour of the restaurant worker's restaurant, our restaurant the lovely stage and the handsome tablecloths and the cheerful crockery. And the two of them are constructing a loud tower of babble that has the restaurant worker seething now. And as the mustard man finally escorts the potential performer out the door, shouting, we'll get back to you with an offer. An offer of what? fumes the restaurant worker. The mustard man gives the potential performer one last longing look, glancing down at the potential performer's wingtips and wondering about the feet that they might hold. And then the restaurant worker lets him have it. Inappropriate spew, boundary issue spew, 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 attention monger spew, self-involved juvenile spew, spew, inappropriate, inappropriate, inappropriate behavior spew. The restaurant worker expanding and puffed up like a porcupine on defense and the mustard man shrinking and inappropriate now. He's backing out the door. The mustard man didn't stop coming to our restaurant. He still appeared regularly, but now he never sat. 
he never table hopped, ordering only bread gobbed with mustard to go. He became the mustard man. Bread with mustard to go, please, in a clear but subdued voice. And the restaurant worker never spoke personally to him again. Things were ice between them. Professional. Appropriate. And sometimes the mustard man wouldn't even come in. The restaurant worker would look up from strangling a fruit salad or burning a bagel to death and see the mustard man, his face pressed against the restaurant window, like the restaurant was a new pair of Converse high tops and the restaurant worker a wondrous pair of feet the mustard man would love to get his hands on. And the restaurant worker thought the mustard man looked particularly bad with his face pressed against the window like that. Bill O'Reilly is running the Rhino Fest, and he works at the Winter Cabaret Restaurant. Before you and your jurymen, now if you give me a chance, I'll try to explain why I deserted my wife, Eva. Now I know she's my best gal, it's true, but how would you like for your wife to give to you? She gave me beans for my breakfast, beans for my lunch, beans at supper time. Oh, she had string beans, baked beans, boiled beans, navy beans, beans, rain and shine. Well, she had no ham. On our program, coming up, what is coming up? Coming up, hot dogs as metaphor for all politics in the city of Chicago, and and ever so much more as our little food program continues. 
Act Three, A Parable of Politics. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by uh, one of the public radio reporters here in Chicago, Shirley Jihad. Welcome to our studio. Hi there, Ira. And Shirley, you've agreed to do a little assignment for us because hot dogs in Chicago are not just food. They are, they are a lens through which we can see the workings of our great city. And I know that, that you, you have a story here of a company that did everything it was supposed to here in the city that works to grease the skids and see that things went well and ran into some trouble. And finally, well, we'll say whether they prevailed or not as the story proceeds. But why don't you explain who this company is? Well, well, that's right, Ira. We're talking about Chicago's own Vienna Beef Hot Dog. This is a very established company in the city. Been here for more than 100 years, and like you said, they've done everything right. They employ 500 people in the city. They stayed in town when other people went to the suburbs. Uh, the head of the company, Jim Bodman, is a, a good corporate citizen, a contributor to all the right campaigns, including uh, Mayor Daley's campaign, Mayor right. Richard Daley's campaign. He gives the maximum amount he can. Whenever City Hall calls, he says he responds uh, as, as much as he can. He sends hot dogs to the parks for kids. He's even contributing hot dogs to the big media party uh, for journalists and delegates coming to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And every year he contributes to the city's big summer party, the city's best summer festival, Festival, the Taste of Chicago. The city tries to draw in area residents and tourists from all around using this festival. And they ask us for money to help them do that. And we give them money, and they promise us that all the food that is served there will be our food, and they put our name up. It's a classic example of you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. Pretty simple, and it works very well. So guys playing by the rules. Everything's going just as it's supposed to. And now at this point I can pick up the story a little bit because about a year ago I happened to be sitting in Jim Bodman's office at the Vienna Beef Sausage Company for reasons too complicated to go into here. <laughs> and um, and I'm sitting there and, and the phone rings and it's somebody's from the mayor's office and they want 200 hot dogs for some event in some park for some kids. And Bodman says, sure, sure, sure. And then his voice goes kind of low. He says, listen to me. Can you give me any help on this Navy Pier thing? They're killing me on this Navy Pier thing, and I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Why we can't get our dogs out onto Navy Pier? Ira, take us to Navy Pier. Hit that sound. All right, let's hit the sound through the magic of radio. That was such a public radio moment, wasn't it? <laughs> Here we are on Navy Pier, Ira. It's a wonderful place for summer fun. <laughs> Carousels, Ferris wheels. Watch out for that kid with that balloon, Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> it's so realistic. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of shops, a lot of food, you know, the water and the boats and whatnot. It's called the Jewel of Chicago's Lakefront. It's this high-traffic showcase area. Tourists. A lot of tourists, a lot of folks from the suburbs. Yeah. A lot of kids. A lot of kids. It costs $100 million of taxpayer money, bond money, to build, uh, to refurbish Navy Pier. Right. And it was all carefully planned which businesses were going to go where. Now, Bodman told me that he couldn't get the dog out on Navy Pier. Did he bid on the contract? Bodman bid 45 cents lower per pound for his dogs to be on Navy Pier, and he still didn't get the contract. That seems to me to be not the way things are done. It's not the way things should have been done in here in Chicago. in Chicago. Somehow this New York hot dog migrated into our into our backyard and it didn't happen by random occurrence. Somebody knew somebody who knew somebody and they said, 
let's get Charlie's hot dogs into Navy Pier and we'll really have a big time with it because it's a very public place. No, it wasn't random. Something happened. Somebody said something to someone and that's the way the world works. And that's the way our city works. The fix was in. <laughs> well, that yeah, he doesn't quite say the fix was in. He just sort of leaves it at that, you know. I guess it's uh, part of the Chicago code of honor, you know, in politics. You don't know nobody, nobody sent. So he wasn't going to exactly tell me who that somebody was. He wouldn't who tell knew you. Somebody. Ah, he would not tell you. He would not say. Who was that? Do you know? No. Was it somebody who? And if I for knew, and if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who worked for the pier? I might be a hot dog salesman, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> was it like, do you think it was I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> 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 Was it? Was it like I a, don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> see, there is a tactic you don't see many big corporate executives <laughs> use with reporters, is just to mock you in a falsetto. <laughs> that's true, Ira. He was a tough one to crack. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he wouldn't come forward and tell me the name. Well, that's you know? our system. That's our that's our system here in Chicago. So where'd you go? So, of course, we had to take it to City Hall. Bobman wasn't talking, so we had to go to our City Hall sources. All right. And, of course, they... They did talk, albeit in a whisper. I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't free to say everything openly. They weren't talking on tape or anything, but, right. you know. But uh, off tape, uh, my city hall sources did talk to me about this whole thing with uh, the hot dogs on the pier and how it really went down. Okay. You know, how come the Chicago company didn't get their dogs on the pier? Now, did they give you a name of somebody who was, uh, who was the person who was keeping us off the pier, keeping our, our keeping homegrown Chicago dogs off the pier? Did they give you a name? We don't have a name. We don't we have a name. We still okay. don't have a name. All right, we said, well, what do we have? But we do have some very important information. All we right. do have confirmation, as we say in the business. We have confirmation because the City Hall source has confirmed to me that, yeah, this is how Chicago works. It's been this way for years and years and years, and it's always going to be this way, he says. It's not necessarily the best way, but it is the way it is. And he said to me, quote, the fix was in. I would, say, I would say I would say actually you know given the fact that <laughs> Bobman bid forty five cents less a pound and didn't get the contract I'd say that I would believe that you would believe <laughs> that okay well yeah. we have confirmation the fix was in he says and then he says people need to be taken care of all right these are his words not mine all right then he paused though this mm -hmm. was the interesting part he takes a pause people need to be taken care of he says and he pauses he says and that's not necessarily a corrupt thing. <laughs> That's how it is in Chicago, yeah, you know. Yeah, the streets are paved. <laughs> the garbage is picked up. That's a good thing. That's right. So, um, so people need to be taken care of. Then Bobman right. is, is absolutely—he's one, one of those people. He's one of those people. At this point, he really feels like he needs to be taken care Contributor of. Contributor to the he's mayor. Been, yeah. 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 All right. So he feels like he's been left hung out to dry after he did everything right. He gives to the mayor's campaign. He. Call, you know, he comes whenever he's called at City right. Hall and, and whatnot. So next is? So, of course, what's next in politics? A meeting. Absolutely. <laughs> they call the meeting. And all the players got together. All you right. know. And so this is like one of those quintessential, you know, Chicago-style political meetings. You know, you've all heard about them, maybe imagined them. You know, high-powered, I wish room, I could only see cigars. the mayor's schedule for that day. <laughs> like, you know, 11 to 11.30, hot dog meeting. <laughs> no detail too small. So what do we know about who was at this meeting? Well, um, you know, we, we have conflicting information on exactly who was at the meeting. My okay. city hall source tells me the mayor was, in fact, at the meeting. But, of course, <laughs> <laughs> this 
all-important high-powered hot dog meeting. How could he miss it? All right. And so, uh, but Bodman insists, no, the mayor wasn't there. You know, he has more important things to do than deal with these weenie problems. Right. Th- those are Bodman's words, again, not mine. All right. Um, but who was there? <laughs> so who was there? All these uh, officials from Navy Pier, uh, the governing body of Navy Pier. That's a state agency, the Metropolitan Pier and Convention Authority, or some name like that. Okay, That's a state right. agency. So we got people from a state agency. <laughs> we got the mayor, or his, or and and or assistance to the mayor, and all different kinds of liaisons from the mayor's office. Right. And we have Bodman and his people, and we have some people from the catering company that deals with the contracts uh, at for the Navy pier, pier. Right. Yeah. So like we say, it's one of those, you know. You know, and you picture. This kind of thing, you picture sort of a very high-powered, glamorous sort of thing. Let's hear how Bodman tells it. It was interesting. There were about 15 people in the room. It was like a school board meeting. You know, everybody likes to hear themselves talk. (laughs) I'm so glad I was not there. It may have not been that exciting. As somebody who's been to many (laughs) school board meetings, I just want to say. Okay, so did he get satisfaction? In the end, Bodman says justice was served, and now you can, dear listener, get your Vienna beef dog on Navy Pier if you uh, come justice to Chicago. Justice was served on a sesame seed bun. Or poppy seed, poppy bun, seed bun, my dear. Me, right. <laughs> With hot peppers, thank you. All right. So justice was served, and you can get your dog on Navy Pier now. You can get your dog on Navy Pier. That's our city. It's the city that works. It's a place where politics runs deep, thick throughout everything it's in the air you can't even, even see it even hot dogs you got to take it to the fifth floor you got to take it to the mayor's office that's, that's right that's what we're talking about and the bodman says this is just business it's, it's not, not politics it's not just politics. business the truth of the matter is that this is just a business deal you know they were using hot dogs and we didn't like the fact that they came from a competitor and that's how our economic system works you get in there and you fight and you ask and you beg and you do whatever you can do that's legal and moral and you try to get the business, and that's what the other people are trying to do also. Did we use the political people to help us in that fight? You bet we did. We called the mayor. I would have called Bill Clinton had he answered the telephone. I mean, because that's, you know, if you've got some competitive blood flowing in your veins, that's what you do. We didn't need Bill. We needed Rich, and Rich is... Rich, I should say, for our listeners at home, Rich, of course, Rich Daly, our mayor. He's the guy who helped us. We, we use them. We don't use them very often, but this is one time that we did use them. But it was not political influence as much as it was just seeking help from people who we've helped before. And I just want to stop the tape right there. <laughs> if that is not a political influence, what is politics if it is not seeking help from people who you have helped before? Sounds kind of political. All right. But not, not to say <laughs> not there's anything button. wrong with yeah. that. Not to say there's anything legal. wrong with that. It's it legal. All, yeah. Above board. All above board. Mm-hmm. Well, there's our city right there. Shirley Jihad, thank you for, for helping us with this little parable of the city that works and exactly how it works and how it extends even down to the lowliest bun. <laughs> thank you, Ira. Thank you. You know, I should also say thanks to Dick Bodman, who really had no good reason to talk to us. You know, that, that is a sign of a decent person. and He's actually a listener to our radio station. It is a generous act, and, and we appreciate that. Waiter! Oh, waiter! Yes, madame? May I have some service, please? I want to be wined and dined. You can have your bacon nice and brown Have your ham and eggs turned upside down You heard me, boy, just what I said I want a big fat hot dog tween my bread Steaks and pork chops, even lamb You can't get those things from Uncle Sam I drink my beer and it goes to my head I want a big 
dog tween my bread. Chicken and duck and turkey too. Fish and crabs and oyster stew. Pigtails, chillings and barbecue. Ain't got nothing for them to do. All the shrimps and lobsters and caviar are all the folks who eat at the classy bars. You heard me wait just for the scent. I'm on a big fat hot dog tween my bread. Ain't that something, that chick coming here, talking about she wanted to be wined and dined. She come call me away from my customers, ask me, Waiter, will you give me a glass of beer and a big fat hot dog? Yeah, I'll give you a glass of beer and hit you upside the head with a big fat hot dog. heart you know one of the things about fast food is like everything else in our in our culture everything you know everything that's made to be throwaway everything that's made to be disposable like bad tv shows everything like that sooner or later we become so fond of it becomes a deep part of our experience and then it becomes basically who we are that was that's the most philosophical thing i'm going to say on the show for the next year let me just say that right now Anyway, so with that in mind, we have a story here by Cassandra Smith about the meaning of one particular fast food and fast food establishment. On the 18th day in Japan, I finally broke down. Nearly three weeks and I had refused all Western food. Not a cup of coffee or a glass of milk. I refused beef, white bread. I'd even given up chewing gum. My hostess was worried. Breakfast American style? She asked every evening after my dinner of raw fish or shrimp. She had heard me gagging and crying late at night. No, I answered. I was determined to live and eat Japanese style. Seafood, soy sauce, and rice. Even the candy is made out of rice. On the 18th day, I cracked. On a back street in Kyoto, the smell of hot fried chicken sliced through the air. It was a siren song, a pied piper that led me zombie-like through the narrow streets. I followed the thick, greasy fragrance and found, jammed between the noodle shops and sushi bars, a safe haven. Here, on a main street in Kyoto, Japan, next door to a kimono boutique, stood an outpost of civilization, a Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> 
The aroma of eleven herbs and spices pushed out into the evening air, past geishas on their way to work in full regalia, and career girls rushing home with takeout sushi. Standing at the door was a five-foot statue of the colonel. He was dressed all in white and holding a gold-tipped cane. His eyes were slanted and his cheeks round and red like Santa, but it was him, the colonel, with his right hand raised in a sign of peace. I rushed inside. Once in, I felt a flood of relief. The familiar vinyl booths, the colonel's smiling face over the menu, which even though it was in Japanese, I instantly understood. Breast and wing, slaw and biscuit. The cardboard box popped open like a magic jewel case. I sank my teeth into her greasy breast and heaved a sigh filled with tears. When I finally looked up, I realized the restaurant was jam-packed with Japanese eating chicken and biscuits. In the bright fluorescent light, they sucked bones and licked their fingers with gusto. The excitement was unbelievable, and when I translated the cost of a snack box from yen to dollars, I realized that at these prices, this was a serious night out on the town. Suddenly, the taste of the chicken went sour in my mouth. The Japanese believe in the colonel. They think he invented this recipe. I was numb with fury. This is mine, mine! I wanted to scream. Black slaves invented this recipe. You think that old white man stood over a wood stove frying chicken? I looked from face to face, the voice screaming inside of my brain. I wanted their gratitude. I wanted credit for their greasy smiles. Look at me! I wanted to shout. I'm the eleven herbs and spices. I'm the secret recipe. All around, people were laughing and smacking and licking their fingers, and in the dark of the Kyoto night, the bright white statue of the colonel shone like a beacon. Then I realized something else. This colonel had destroyed my world and everything in it. Now follow me here. This is what I'm trying to say. I'm saying that to understand the history of the last forty years, you have to understand the history of chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken has wiped out a way of life, destroyed a culture. It used to be that every black woman in America had her own secret recipe, but nobody fries chicken anymore—not when they can pick up a bucket for eight. And on top of that, chicken dinners were the foundation of an underground economy. Need a few extra dollars? Sell dinners. We've experienced a hostile takeover of enormous proportions. Church women who cleaned offices all night and sold dinners all day—they fed us and left our churches mortgage-free. We've forgotten our recipes, and a few more years of the Colonel, and I'm afraid we might not remember anything. Cassandra Smith. Talking no bullshit. Too many damn people that's so damn full of it. Keep the money, walking, oh we 
Know your meat. This is a this is a poem by Lisa Buscani. I remember red meat. In red meat's time, our lives were marbled with victory. Fat meant winning, and we had room for bounce. The flesh of our fingers folded over our sacred rings, burying our eyes and doubling our smiles. In red meat's time, we slapped it down to fry pans, to roasters, to broilers, through grinders, skipped the lying, seeping surface. That's life. That's death. That's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, and I'll give you something to cry about. The men then were men, and the women were bubbly. Fuzzy, bunny, bubbly. Impossibly cinched, chiffon giggling bubbly, thigh high, long line, nylon fly me to Rio bubbly, excuses while we powder our nose. Ah. And in the under and the back, deals were made featuring details you shouldn't know about, sealed with the tight fiber of rare red meat, chased with hard gold liquor, unnatural laughter, and prayer. And the men shifted in the overstuffed chairs, fearing and loving their birthrights as manly steaks and godly brats snuggled under intestinal tissue for a long, long nap. It was science, blasted bodies of knowledge that ended it, showing us how our hearts stopped too soon, our colons packed rock solid with the remnants of grand tours, our veins viscous with bad fats. Education's cries rattle and gnash for alternatives, so we searched for other stuff to tear between our teeth. Enter 
the fruits of the sea, the albacores, prawn, cods, swordfish, and soles that lay light and oily and sour on our plate. In seafood's time, we tread lightly. You could almost hear the wind chimes when we walked. The world was beige, the wood was blonde, and California had its airy tentacles in everything. We melted down to skeletal angles, laid artificial blends on our backs, and stalked the mandatory party. In seafood's time, men were men and the women were sullen. Straight-haired and bare-faced, they grew tired of waiting for their share of the shrimp. Any male smile was sniffed and suspected of sexism. Sisters had been fooled before. Women pulled back into books and behind low-level desks, waiting for the moment when they would emerge equal, like the butterfly folding back to cocoon in search of a greater wing. Some men shaken by the loss of their girls, grew sideburns and frantically ran to make room. Others rumbled away disgruntled, slamming their spiked tails against a volatile ground in the hope that something would come from the backlash. The edge bled into gray as we abandoned right or wrong in zen cowardice. The sex was shudder and exercise. Looking hard to the eye was far too messy and heavy for the time. And soon we discovered that seafood stuck more to its shells than to our ribs, and its bones were always a problem. It was never cheap in, in a landlocked region, and took too long to cook, thrashing its death throes in mad, cruel water. So we began again, looking for the food that wouldn't scar us. And along came poultry. Light and filling, miraculously versatile. After all, didn't everything else aspire to taste like it? Poultry gave itself up to us selflessly, blending perfectly in all our dishes. In life, these beaks were mean, jutting little monsters, but in death, nude and hanging from its ankles, poultry was considerate enough to see that our blood kept pumping unobstructed. In poultry's time, we filled back to livable weights, but not grossly slow, so, and with its fuel, we ran hard at what we wanted. The world was... The world was... Well, we can't remember what the world looked like. We never stopped long enough for it to focus from its blur. In poultry's time, the men were men and the women were men. Check the musculature. See the stamina. We watched as women tore up stomach lining with the best of them. Weren't their heads for fourth quarter figures and baby-making afterthoughts? Wasn't their laughter the most false silk, much like the scarves they wore as their last shred of sex? Kissed the kids and passed the paprikash. There was work to be done. And the men... Feeling rushed and outrun, slipped into hard, sleek Italian numbers, legions of bloodless Pat Rileys. They began to look downward for their models, not bothering to play by rules they kept changing. I'll bet you a Bolsky and raise you two trumps. In, pol in poultry's time, pork made a stab at such a claim. Stamping its feet like a naggy little brother, I'm white meat, put me in, coach. But we would not be swayed. In the name of an ovine utopia, it was poultry that we loved. Until we found out how it was cleaned, or rather, how it wasn't cleaned. Salmonella stories and other beastly bacteria. Jim Fix dropped like a fly in mid-jog. Nothing was ever what it seemed, and all promises lay shattered at the pedestal's base. Now, we wander listlessly from food to food. Nothing fills us like we once knew. 
pasta is a sometime friend that bores, bores us with its quantity, and we can never seem to bring the vegetable over from the side dish. Our options are melting like spring ice, and we are slipping to old-world poverties. Men and women are coming down slowly from their separate mountains. Sorry, really sorry, for everything, I mean it. They are remembering the goodness in each other's faces, benevolent skin and bone. There is so much less static and distraction, and we have time now. Can't we try again? And if you listen closely, you can hear the reticent, reformed tapping of red meat at our survival's door. Uh, hi! I was in the neighborhood. Don't the words lean and free-range mean anything to anyone? Give me another chance. Can't ya? Hey, everybody, did the news get around about a guy named Butcher Pete? Old Pete just flew into this town and he's chopping up all the women's meat. He's Lisa Buscani, Chicago poet who now lives in, um, right now she's in Boston. Man, that song is nasty. Our program produced today by Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, Peter Carney, and myself, contributing editors, Paul Top, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rockland. I'm just switching music here. Special thanks today to Dick Bodman, who, again, I'll reiterate, had no reason to talk to us, nothing to gain from it. And to the staff of the Wiener Circle, who also had no reason to spend an evening with our little radio show. And remember, you'll hear more about them if you tune in. Not this Saturday, not the Saturday after that, but the Saturday after that. If you would like a copy of this program, it's only $10. Call us at WBEZ to order that. 312-832-3380. 312-832-3380. All of the shows we do are available on cassette. Our email address, radio at well.com. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. Hi, me again, uh, 2006. That's pretty much um, that's pretty much all we have of that show. I hope you enjoyed it.